Scripture this reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 40, 53 and 54. Read like this. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and all the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? God, would you prepare our hearts to accept your word? Please silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 851, 851. Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This serves as both a warning to the proud and a very real testimony of what the proud may experience, something Solomon would have come to know quite well. This fall, or this destruction as it is referred to, uh, is hard. It can be painful, and it can affect other people. But it can also be a gift. Because this kind of humiliation can actually put us in the place of recognizing our own limitations. Recognizing our own limits. In order to fix a problem, you must first identify that we have a problem. And when the proud fall, it's an opportunity to recognize that there's a problem. James chapter 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Such a good word. As we come to our passage this morning, the contrast of, of Peter's failure and Christ's faithfulness that Mark began earlier in this chapter, he continues into the remainder of this chapter. And here, as we go through the, the, these last verses in chapter 14, we see the fulfillment of Jesus' words to Peter and the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' suffering. We ended last week with Jesus being arrested in the garden. And so began what is often called the Via Della Rosa. That's Latin for the way of sorrows or the way of grief. This would be, we could call this, the longest night for Jesus. And we see here in verse 53, it begins, or continues, we might say, with three religious trials. Look again at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, and the elders, and the scribes came together. So from the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is then led to a trial with the high priests. 
Jesus would experience several trials during his last day, last hours. Uh, there would be three religious trials done by the Jews, and there would be three civil trials done by the Romans. If we were to kind of map Jesus' progression, we can see the, the highlighted line there gets us to the palace of the high priest, or so we might think that that is where it w- would have been. The very first trial, though, is not actually recorded in the book of Mark. The first trial is recorded in the book of John, where Jesus goes before a man named Annas, where he is questioned and then he is struck in the face. We won't look at that trial this morning. But after having been at, with, with Annas, he is then taken to a trial with a man named Caiaphas. The second and third trials are recorded here in Mark, the second of which we will look at this morning. Having been, having already seen Annas, Jesus then moves to see, uh, to stand in front of Caiaphas, who Caiaphas was the high priest at the time. He succeeded Annas, who happened to be his father-in-law. So as Jesus is, is standing there before for, for Caiaphas, he, he's not, it's not only Caiaphas. We, we learn that there are all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes came together. Uh, this group was called The Sanhedrin. It was a Jewish council of 71 religious leaders. And so in the middle of the night, remember, this is in the middle of the night, these leaders quickly gather in order to put Jesus on trial so that they can have a sentence in order for him to stand before Pilate when the morning would come. We learn that this trial... Uh, proved to be illegal, a a, a kangaroo court, if you will. Uh, Jesus, in this sense, was proven guilty. Uh, He was guilty before proven innocent. We, We, in our law, say innocent until proven guilty. In this case, he was guilty until proven innocent. See, the the verdict was already determined. These religious leaders had already determined that this guy was, was, was wrong and he was deserving of death. Now they were just trying to figure out how to get the evidence to justify their verdicts. This was an illegal trial in in many ways. One commentator says that according to its own rules, the council was not to make judgments at night, nor was it to do so outside its sacred chambers of the temple, nor was a capital offense to be determined during Passover. Another commentator says that the charge of blasphemy, which we'll see in just a few moments, was, a, was only charged if the defendant cursed God's name, and the penalty of that was stoning, not crucifixion. Nevertheless, regardless of all of these uh, transgressions against the law, the human heart can justify just about anything it wants, can it? And what did they want? They wanted Jesus dead. They wanted Jesus dead by any means necessary. Well, having described the setting of of the trial of Jesus, Mark also tracked the movement of Peter. Look at verse 54. And Peter had followed at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. As we saw last week, Mark Mark was contrasting that the failure of the disciples as they fled with the faithfulness of Jesus as he stood fast. The the contrast, again, continues in this passage. And so Mark starts with Jesus, 
Then he includes Peter here in the inclusion of Peter, because he's going to go right back to the trial in verse 55. But the inclusion of Peter here was to indicate that these events are happening at the same time. They're concurrent events. It wasn't like Jesus had the trial and then Peter denied Jesus after the trial. These were events going hand in hand. But as a writer, how do do you uh, communicate that? Well, you insert him into, uh, into the timeline and then he'll come back to Uh, those details after the trial. As Jesus was on trial, Peter was in the courtyard, which we'll look at in just a few minutes. Verse 55, beginning in verse 55, Mark describes this trial, the trial before Caiaphas. Read with me verses 55 through 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were, were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. As we said, their goal was to find the evidence it would find the evidence for the, the verdict that they already had wanted. And they would do that by any means necessary, even by, even attempting by false witness. But here we see that the false witnesses can't even get their story straight. That they, they can't even agree together about what they are going to accuse Jesus of. And the law required the testimonies to, to, to agree, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Some we see in verse 50. Eight tried to use Jesus' words against him as evidence of his transgressions. Speaking about the temple being destroyed. Now, this could have been a worthy charge or a charge worthy of punishment. Back in, uh, back in Jeremiah chapter 26, Jeremiah prophesies about the destruction of the, the, um, the temple, and he is threatened with death, right? So, so this was not a small thing when you start to talk about the destruction of the temple. However, the problem is, is that this is not what Jesus said. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. That's the first thing. And secondly, they, they didn't even get his words right either. They added to what Jesus had said. All that aside, Jesus didn't even mean the physical building of the temple. Anyways, he was talking about his own body, the temple of God, his body that would be destroyed and three days later be rebuilt or rise again. In the end, the the attempt to charge Jesus with these false witnesses failed. Now, we need to remind ourselves of something as we're thinking about these trials. This was a trial, a religious trial. These are the religious people. These are the people who, who are said to, to be um, teachers of the law, guardians of the law. These are the people. These are the people who are, are going uh, at Jesus, resorting to these kind of tactics that actually transgress the law. And when those who teach the law resort to tactics that transgress the law, you can know that they don't actually follow the God of the law. It was true then, and it's true today. There are many who in the name of the Lord are acting in ways incongruent with the Lord. 
They, they, they claim to follow Christ, but they do not follow his word. We ought to be aware of such people, be on guard against such people. See, the, the very religious people can end up in the, the, the ditch, spiritually speaking, too. Legalism, or, or adding to what God has said, is no less damning than liberalism. See, whether we add to what God has said or we subtract from what God has said, both are in opposition to what God has said. We must be careful about both ditches. Our goal is to be people of the book. Just stick to the book. You don't need to add to it. You don't need to take away from it. There might be some hard passages. You bet there's some hard passages. That doesn't mean we throw them out. Maybe you think you're more conservative than God. That's a problem. That's a problem. And don't think it's any less damning than the person who thinks they're more liberal than God. Both, both are an affront to God. Well, this trial was not going as planned, so Caiaphas, Caiaphas gets involved himself in verse 60. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst. So there was a, he, he kind of went into the crowd, so to speak, around the, the people close to Jesus, and he asked Jesus, have you, have you no answer to make? What is, it, uh, what is it that these men testify against you? Verse 61, and he remained silent and made no answer. He remained silent, or he kept silence. That, that is a continual. He, he continued to be silent. He refused to legitimize these accusations. And here, the silence of Jesus before his accusers reminds us of the prophet Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. It says this about the suffering servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. At this point, Jesus remained silent in fulfillment of Scripture. Nothing seems to be working here for Caiaphas. Right? The plan to, to accuse Jesus, the plan to find a witness against him, it's not working. They, they, can't, they got nothing that they can, can attribute a sentence of death to. And so Caiaphas goes further. Matthew chapter 26, verse, chapter 26, verse 63 <clears throat> tells us that, that Caiaphas... Um, basically puts Jesus under, under oath. He, he adjures him, trying to force him to, to talk. In verse 61, the rest of verse 61 says, and again the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And the high priest is asking a question, but consider what he is saying. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed? Who is the blessed? What is the blessed? That, that, was, a, that was a reference to God. That was a, a substitution for saying the word God. Who, are you the son of God? Are you the Christ? And though he's asking a question, these truths are self-evident. 
And it's at this point where Jesus speaks. Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. So for nearly all of Jesus' public ministry, he told people, don't tell anybody who I am. Don't tell anybody that I healed you. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. He didn't want to undo attention. He didn't want people to, to seek for a political or a military Messiah. And so he wanted to keep it under wraps. But the time had come for the secret to be kept no longer. And Jesus speaks. And the first words that he speak, speaks in verse 62 is, I am. And those of you who are familiar with the Bible know that that is a direct reference to what the Lord said to Moses in the book of Exodus. When Moses says, who do I tell has sent me? And he says, tell them, I am has sent you. That's a reference to the Lord himself. Jesus is claiming deity. I am the Messiah. I am God. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. The Son of Man, that's another reference. He's used this before, as he's used I am before as well. But here he's putting them all together, this, this combination of several Old Testament references. The Son of Man, this is a, a clear messianic uh, reference from Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> and what about this Son of Man? He's seated on the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. This answer was both a confession. Yeah, you're right. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I, I am all of those things, but it's also a warning. Because not just that I am those things, but one, one writer summarizes Jesus' message this way. You're judging me, but soon I will judge you. I'm coming with the, in the clouds, sitting at the, the, the right hand of power, Jesus is saying, you, you think you got judgment going for yourself right now against me, but, but be it known that judgment is coming for you. And be it known today that God will judge. He will judge those religious leaders and he will judge all those who reject him as Lord and Savior. Just last night, we were having some family devotions and we read these verses from Ephesians chapter five. Listen to them. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Now just pause there for a minute. Some of us don't want to be included in any of those categories. Here's the reality. Apart from Christ, we are all included in those categories. Every one of us. We're all impure. We're all idolaters. Why? Because apart from Christ, you worship another God. So what is, what is the, the text saying here? Be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Paul is saying, don't be deceived. Judgment is coming. When Jesus says this to the religious leaders, he's saying, be careful here. I, I am who you think I am. I am, the, I am Jesus. I am the Son of God. And there will be a judgment day. And you and I can know it too. Judgment is coming. 
Well, the high priest received Jesus' words not as he ought to, not with, with repentance, not with regret, not with sorrow, godly sorrow. Rather, he, he, he saw, those, uh, saw these statements as a, a deadly trans, transgression of, of blasphemy. Look at verse 63. And the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witnesses do you need, do we need? We have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision to the council? The end of verse 64. And they all condemned him as deserving death. So here the, the high priest tears his garment. One writer says this is, a, this is a contrived expression of horror and indignity. But here Jesus, he makes the, the verbal proclamation right, in front of all of them. There's no mistaking it now. Right? Maybe they overheard that he said he was I am. Maybe they, they thought he was expressing himself as deity. But here, before all of them, Jesus makes the claim that he is, in fact, the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is, in fact, the Son of God. And to that, they need no more information to condemn him. And the end of verse 64 says, and they all condemned him, deserving of death. By all, that is all that were presents. Because we find out in Luke chapter 23 that there was at least one man who did not consent to his death, that being Joseph of Arimathea. Well, from an unjust trial by the council came a disgraceful act by some. Look at verse 65. And some began to spit on him and cover his face to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Here the, the council thinks they, they got Jesus. They think they got what, what, they, what they wanted finally. Here these, some of these were even harming Jesus. But yet in reality, they were merely fulfilling God's will. They were fulfilling the word of God. Even the striking of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. There would be more to come for Jesus. Here, Jesus was accused. He was condemned. He was abused. But what did he do? He stood firm. He remained faithful in dependence on his father. He was condemned by the council, but next we see that he was denied by his disciple. Now, the, the scene of Mark shifts to a parallel story, or the parallel story, of Peter in the courtyard, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servants, servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, let's stop right there. So Mark is going to pick up the storyline here with Peter. And he, we find Peter still in the courtyard, warming, warming himself by the fire, or literally toward the light, which will be important in just a minute. This is a, um, a reconstruction of what Caiaphas's house or palace may have been like. On the left side is a, a, a courtyard where Peter may have stood. It doesn't look that elevated, but it, it is elevated where Jesus would have been on trial uh, there um, on, the, on the right, just to get a little bit of a, an idea in your mind of, of where the, the placement of these, uh, these men would have been. Uh, again, it's nighttime, right? Apparently uh, cool. So, so Peter is by a fire, which is producing light, right? Light that would uh, make visible 
who he was, make him able to be recognized. Um, the reality is that even in the dark, light reveals the truth. If so it was with Peter. So um, here, Peter may have been, uh, we might look at this and say, Peter was a, a half-hearted disciple. Uh, he was trying his best to do the right thing. Maybe he was looking at this thinking, I'm, I'm going to do it. Man, I, I, I fled back there. I, I, didn't, I didn't stay with Jesus, but, but I'm going to do it. So I'm, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to get close. I'm going I'm to fulfill my promise to Jesus. But the reality is that he was putting himself in a place of temptation. The weakness of his faith was not prepared for the testing that he would endure. Uh, J.C. Ryle notes that, and he, he goes on to say this. When a believer has once begun to backslide and leave his first faith, he seldom stops short at his first mistake. He seldom makes only one stumble. He seldom, seldom commits only one fault. A, a blindness seems to come over his understanding. He appears to cast overboard his common sense and discretion. Like a rolling stone down a hill, further he goes in sinning and faster and more decided is his course. We could insert here just the, the simple statement that sin makes us stupid and we start to do things that don't make any sense. He goes on, like David, he began in idleness and he ended with committing every possible crime. Like Peter, he began in cowardice would go on to foolish trifling with temptation and end with denying Jesus. Well, all this led to the first fulfillment of Jesus' prediction just hours before. Look at it in verse 67. So this servant girl looked at him, looked at Peter, and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. So get the scene. Peter standing by a fire, light off the fire, showing who he is, she sees him, a servant of the high priest sees him. She looks at him or gazes intently and she recognizes him. And then simply makes a statement. You also are with the Nazarene. Just a statement about his, his association with Jesus. There's no indication here that the servant girl was, was accusing Peter of anything. There's no indication that this was a threat to Peter by the servant girl. Yet out of fear, look at verse 68, but he denied, he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Here, Peter fails. His first denial. He fails to stand for Christ before a young girl. And what does he do? He pleads ignorance. I, I, don't, I don't understand. <laughs> I, I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I, I don't know. And then we see that he proceeds to move away. The rest of verse 68. And he, he went into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Again, J.C. Ryle observed that once begun to backslide, once someone begins to backslide, he leaves his first face, he seldom stops after the first mistake, which seems accurate to describe what happens to Peter because we come to verse 69 and we see the second denial. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystander, bystanders, this man is one of them. So, Peter was feeling exposed. And what do you do when you, you feel exposed? You try to hide. That's what Peter did, right? In verse uh, 68, he went into the, the gateway. He separated himself from, from the, the exposure. And yet the girl sees him again at another point and says again, this man is one of them, telling other people that. But again, what does Peter do? He denied. Again, he denied it, verse 70. 
And again, here the language is, is not that he just said, no, I don't know him again. He kept on denying. This is an imperfect, uh, he denied it again. This is an imperfect tense, so it's a continuous statement. It wasn't just a one-off here. Jesus, uh, Peter is, is repeatedly denying Jesus here. So we have two strikes, right, if you're keeping track. Two strikes down, one to go. Verse, the rest of verse 70 and verse 72, or 70 and 71, uh, detail the last denial. And after a while, after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Uh, Peter was exposed. He was exposed visibly. They could see him. He was a Galilean by how he talked. They, they recognized him. Now other people, not just the servant girl, are recognizing it. And the pressure is rising. And what does Peter do? He denies Jesus for the third time. And this time he doesn't just say, I don't know him. He doesn't just say, I'm not with him. What does he say in verse 71? But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. What's the curse? Curse on himself and to swear. The curse is to say, if I'm lying, God will strike me dead. That's what he's saying. And what did he swear? I do not know this man of whom you speak. The final denial was not only a denial of association. It was a denial of any knowledge about him at all. Not only am I not with him, I don't even know him. The one thing we also can note here is he never uses Jesus' name. It's always him. Peter moved from, I will die with you, Jesus, to then fleeing Jesus, to then getting close to him in the courtyard, only then to deny him. Now, Peter may have had a lofty vision of his own faithfulness, but clearly he did not have the courage or the resolve to back it up. It's a lesson for all of us, isn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You and I ought to never play with temptation. Believe it or, or not, you and I may not be quite as strong as we think. Better men and women have yielded to similar temptations to the ones that we have faced, to their great regrets, experiencing unintended consequences, leading to the destruction of the testimony of Jesus and their relationships with others. Temptation and sin are no respecter of persons. We have the capacity to think that we can sin a little and it won't lead to any consequences. Or we can sin a little and it won't lead to more. We ought to stop believing that lie. That's not how sin works. Sin grows. Sin metastasizes. Once we start, it's easy to continue. It is the imagery of, 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 of a, a boulder gaining speed down a hill. Well, verse 72 concludes the story, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. In Mark, he refers to three denials and two crows of the rooster, and here comes the second crow. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the 
rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Warren Wearsby writes, it was not the crowing of the cock that convicted Peter. It was the remembering of Jesus' words. It is always the word that penetrates the heart and brings about true repentance, end quote. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke records that that after the, the crowing of the rooster, Jesus turned and he looked at him. Can you just even try to imagine this? Like we, we, we showed you on that little reconstruction of the building how close they were. It's thought that possibly Jesus was being moved to another location after the trial when he looked at Peter. Regardless, Luke indicates that there was, they were close enough for Jesus to be able to see Peter and to look at him. One commentator says that it wasn't con- condemnation, though, in the eyes of Jesus that Peter saw. It was compassion. It was compassion. It's always God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Certainly, Peter would have felt shame and guilt, but that's not what Jesus' look was indicating. Why do we know that? Because that's not how God looks at us either. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, Romans 2, 4. Peter's response to that kindness, to that compassion, to Jesus, was to recognize his sin. And he broke down and he, and he wept. Or he went out and wept bitterly, Matthew says. Or he, he burst into tears as he, he recognized his sin. He was gutted. He was heartbroken with what he had done. This was not the guilt over getting caught This is the guilt over the wrong that had been done, the sin that had been done. Peter came to the end of himself. He repented, and we know that he was then restored. If we read the rest of the Gospels, we read the the book of John, we find that Jesus finds Peter after the resurrection and restores him to, to, to faithful service, and he became a devoted disciple. The very thing that he claimed that he would do for Jesus and didn't do, That night, he would do later in his life. Our past sins do not preclude future faithfulness. You can know that, and I can know that too. According to church history, it is believed that Peter was martyred by crucifixion. But because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord, he refused normal, quote-unquote, crucifixion, and instead was crucified with his head down and his feet up. In the end, what Peter pledged, he did fulfill. This repeat offender, though, was shown grace. He was shown grace, and it was amazing, and it was free. That doesn't mean it was cheap. This grace is costly. It cost Jesus his life, but it's free to you and me. Our sin is great, but God's grace is greater still. A favorite quotation from Ed Lutzer goes like this. There's more grace in God's heart than sin in our past. Isn't that good? There's more grace in God's heart than there is sin in our past. But this grace only becomes real. You'll only know it as grace when you recognize that you're a sinner and you're unworthy of it. That's what makes grace, grace. If Jesus is just handing out prizes, that's not grace. 
prizes for doing good. Here, you get heaven. You get forgiveness of sins. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus came to, to give to you and me something that we could not deserve on our own. We could not do it on our own. He did what you could not do. Grace only becomes real when we recognize our sin, our unworthiness, and how kind God has been to us. And so we ask, have you, like Peter, recognized and grieved your sin before God? Do you recognize that your sin and my sin required the death of Jesus? That's why Jesus had to die, because of our sin. In order for there to be any hope of salvation, a perfect sacrifice had to be given, and Jesus was that sacrifice. Have you confessed and repented of your sin before God? Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Have you come to the place in your life where you have repented of your sin? That's not, that's not saying I'm sorry, God, for my sin. It's not repentance. Repentance is recognizing and agreeing with God that something is wrong. Owning what you've done is wrong. Knowing what you should have done and asking him to forgive you for not doing what you should have done not doing what you are unable to do apart from him. And have you received him and his forgiveness that he died to provide? If you have not, then the invitation today is to come to him. Maybe you can identify with Peter. Quite frankly, we should all identify with Peter. We have all denied him. We deny him every time when we choose something over him. That's a denial. That's saying, I want something different than what he is offering. So we can all identify with Peter that we're not as good as we want to be, that we have all fallen short, that we have all sinned, that we all deserve death. We all deserve the judgment of God. And yet God extends grace to us. And he says, I love you, and therefore I sent my son to die for you so that you don't have to experience the penalty of your sin. Peter's faith failed because he was relying on himself, not on God. It's usually easier to see in other people than in ourselves, but, but we can know this, that we too are weak, we too have sinned, and we too have denied Jesus. So what is our hope? How can, how can we be sure that we're going we're gonna to stand when the time comes? Maybe you feel weak in faith. The Apostle Paul writes to this in 2 Corinthians 12, and he says, And he, talking about the Lord, said to me, talking about Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The late J.I. Packard has written this, The weaker we feel, the harder we lean. The harder we lean, the stronger we grow spiritually. The strength in our weakness comes from the one on whom we are leading leaning. And so we ask, who are you leaning on today? Who are you trusting in today? If you think that your goodness is going to get by, 
Let Peter be your case study of why that's not true. If you're counting on good works, let Peter be evidence that that doesn't work. The Lord is our strength. Vance Harvner writes this, the Lord had the strength and I had the weakness. So he teamed up and it was an unbeatable combination. Isn't that good? He's got the strength, I got the weakness. Where does the strength come? When I'm weak. Let's put those two things together and see where our strength comes from. Our hope is in the strength that God provides. See, Jesus was condemned so that there would be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He was denied by men. He paid our sacrifice, a sacrifice that was accepted by the Father so that we could be accepted in the beloved, in Christ. For what? For by grace you have been saved through faith. We have failed greatly, and Jesus has remained faithful. The good news is that you are more than your sin. You don't have to be, identi- you don't have to be identified by your sin. You don't have to be. You can be identified in Christ. There's two ways the Bible talks about man, in Adam or in Christ. In Adam, all die. In Christ, we live. Man fails. Christ has been faithful. How will you ever be faithful to the end? Apart from him, you will not be. Only in him. Come to him today. If you've yet to trust him, we invite you to repent and believe. If you have trusted him, come to him today for strength to remain faithful all our days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus. We're thankful for the salvation that he has given, provided through his death on the cross for us. We're thankful that though we have failed, though we are sinners, yet Christ is a great savior who offers that salvation to all who would repent and believe. And so God, we pray that those here today who have ears to hear would repent of their sin and believe. Believe on Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed. That they would repent from their sins and turn to walk in the newness of life. That they would find in Jesus something greater than anything the world could offer to find in Jesus the hope that that is not only in this life, is in this life, but not only in this life, but in the life to come. They would come to Jesus to find life eternal that begins now and lasts forever. They would come to to Jesus to, to find that the peace, the peace that passes all understanding, which only comes when we are at peace with God. And we can be at peace with you, God, through your son Jesus, in whom we pray these things. Amen. Our God.